Well, a lot of us are still stuck in prison. E even though we've learned the truth, we come to two-seed-line identity, and, and we still have the traps of, of Judeo-Christian interpretations of the Scripture, and, and in a lot of ways, we're still stuck in prison. But what I discussed tonight is going to be a response to, to events on the Christogenia Euro Forum from Thursday, where there was some serious disagreement over a certain parable. And, and for that reason, today, I'm going to discuss, and, and this is probably, this is off the top of my head. It's, I, I really have not much prepared for it, just a little bit. And, and I'm going to discuss the parables of Matthew chapter 13. And that's because the gentleman Thursday that was, was um, spewing a certain parable with me insisted that, first he insisted that the, the symbols throughout the parable should always be consistently interpreted. And, and that's just not what a parable is. I'm sorry, that's simply not true. I hope to demonstrate that here to some extent tonight without going outside of Matthew chapter 13. And also that all of the parables, except the one of which the figure is a woman, that all of the parables of Matthew 13, the main figure is Christ. Oh, I'm sorry, that's simply not true either. Yahshua Christ spoke about a hell of a lot more than just himself during his mission here. These parables are teaching lessons for us. First, I'd like to talk about what a parable is. And, and the Greek word that it comes from, because parable isn't even an English word, right? Parable is a Greek word. And, and let me introduce the show first. I'm sorry, this is the Christogenia Open Forum. And, and it's, um, it's Monday, April 11th, 2011. Thank you all for being here. This is um this is what a parable is. It comes from a Greek a Greek word parabolos, which has a, a wide variety of meaning, and and so does the um so does the noun I'm sorry the verb parabolo, and and parabolos means with a side meaning, and and in a negative sense it means deceitful. But but it means it, that something has a side meaning, meaning it, it doesn't mean exactly the, the literal use, the normal literal use of the word, and and that's a parabolus, and and in that same sense the verb can mean to set beside or parallel with, and, and the Greeks used that word of allegorical stories, and in the English dictionary. A parable is a simple story illustrating a moral or religious lesson. And, and while that's true, a parable is really a little more than that. A parable is more like an allegory, an allegory in, as we know it in English. And an allegory is the use of characters or events to represent ideas or principles in a story play or picture. A story, picture, or play in which such representation occurs. A symbolic representation. In, in other words, the words used in an allegory don't bear their literal meanings. And, and we're going to see that today. And it's pretty obvious to everybody in the parables. There's little argument about that. H however, we can't... It's evident that not all symbols mean the same thing wherever they appear in parables, and, and that will become evident today also. I'm going to start with, with um, Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. 
And that day Yahshua, departing from the house, sat by the sea, and many crowds gathered to him. So as for him boarding into a vessel to sit, in other words, he was being crowded off the beach, right? And all the crowds stood upon the shore. And he spoke to them many things in parables, saying, Behold, the sower has come out, for which to sow. And upon his sowing then some fell by the road, and having come the birds devoured them. But others fell upon the rocks where they had not much earth, and immediately had sprung up on account of not having deep earth. And upon the rising of the sun they were scorched, and on account of not having root they withered. And others fell upon thorns, and the thorns rose up and strangled them. But others fell upon the good earth and provided fruit, while some a hundredfold, and then some sixty and some thirty. He having an ear must hear. And coming forth the students said to him, reading from the Christogenian New Testament, anybody wonders, what reason do you speak in parables to them? In replying, he said to them, Because to you it is known, it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of the heavens, but to those it is not given. For he who has, it shall be given to him, and he shall have abundance. But he who does not have, even that which he has shall be taken from him. For this reason I speak to them in parables, because seeing they shall see, and hearing I'm sorry, because seeing they shall see not, and hearing they shall not hear, nor shall they understand. It's evident that the mixed crowd in Judea, Yahshua Christ, didn't want everybody to understand. That's what he's explaining. And the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in them, which says, By hearing you shall hear, and by no means should you understand, and looking you shall look, and by no means should you see. And and I, I've had occasions in my own life where I looked at something, I know what happened, but I didn't see it. I, I mean, this this is... um. And, and and there are things in the Bible that I read a hundred times, and, and while well, there are some of them I probably still don't see. The hearts of this people are grown fat, and with the ears they hear with difficulty, and their eyes have closed. But at no time should they see with the eyes, and hear with the ears, and understand in their hearts. Sometimes some people, you can give them the plain word of Scripture, they still ain't going to get it, no matter how many times you try to explain it to them. But they should repent, and I shall heal them. But blessed are your eyes... That they shall see in your ears that they shall hear. Truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see the things which you see, and they did not see, and to hear the things which you hear, and they did not hear. Therefore you must speak, you must hear or understand the parable of the sower. Each hearing and not understanding the word of the kingdom, the evil one comes and snatches away that which has been sown in his heart. This is that having been sown by the road. And that having been sown upon the rocks, this is he hearing the word and immediately receiving it with joy. Yet it does not have root in him, but is temporary. And upon tribulation or persecution, coming on account of the word, he is immediately entrapped. And that having been sown in the thorns, this is he hearing the word and the cares of this age and the deceit of riches. Angle the word, and it becomes fruitless. That having been sown upon the good earth, this is he hearing the word and understanding, who surely bears fruit, and makes then some a hundredfold, and some sixty, and some thirty. Some people will go out and share the word with a hundred, and with thirty, and with sixty. The person I had this disagreement with on, on um, Thursday, he, he insisted that the figure in every one of these parables, the central figure, was Christ, except the parable with the woman, which we will get to. I would dispute that idea right from the beginning. 
In the next parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares, we will see that Christ, in his explanation, explicitly states that he who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. Now, sowing in the parable of the wheat and the tares is of people. Sowing in the parable of the sower is the sowing of the word. So this man who, who insisted that every word in the parables be interpreted the same way every time is at fault from the first two parables. Because the sowing means something different in the parable of the sower than it means in the parable of the wheat and tares. That, I would say, checkmate. Your premise is not correct. The importance of that will be realized later when I get to the parable of the treasure in the field. Does this sower in this first parable have to be Christ? Which is what he would insist. And I'm using him as an example. I'm not picking on the gentleman. But his interpretations are, if you ask any, well, many church people, they are the basic Judeo-Christian interpretations of these parables. And my interpretations are quite different, and, and I would admit that. I would think that my interpretations are in concert with the entire Bible. I would pray that they are. And, and we shall see that also. But the um, central figure in this first par- in, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Yahshua, in his explanation of it, explicitly tells us that he's sowing the good seed as the Son of Man. He does not make that claim here. If it were true... I'm sure he would tell us again that he sowing the seed of the word is the son of man. However, in scripture, Isaiah 53.1, Isaiah asks Yahweh, and this is quoted by Paul, it's quoted in the New Testament, Who has believed our report? Our report. And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? Gospel belongs to us. We are to spread the gospel. Christ sent his apostles to send to spread the gospel. That, that's at the end of the, the gospel of Matthew. It's very explicit. It was their mission to spread the gospel to the children of Israel. Of course, Christ couldn't do it himself. And another scripture that Paul quotes in Romans 10.15 is Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings. That is the gospel. That's what the word that we know as gospel means. The, the Greek word is euagalos, and, and euagalos means a good message. That's what the word literally means as we see it translated in my own version of the New Testament. That's the literal meaning. So that's what Isaiah must be talking about, because Isaiah 53 is all about the, um, the, the next after Isaiah is all about the, the mission of Christ. A beautiful upon the mountains of the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation. That's Isaiah talking about the gospel message. It's not only talking about Christ. Paul quotes it in Romans. It's, it, it intones those people who bring the gospel to the ears of the children of Israel. Sower is any one of those people. Any one of those people is the sower of Matthew chapter 13. It could be Christ, because of course he's the initiator of the gospel, or it could be any one of his apostles, or the sower could be anyone who followed them in the spreading of the gospel message. 
do not have to read that the sower of this parable is only Christ. That is, um, it's not necessarily contrary to Scripture, but Scripture tells us otherwise that other people would spread the gospel also. And the sower can obviously be any one of them. Christ did not say that this sower was explicitly Christ. He laid forth another parable for them, saying, The kingdom of heavens is likened to a man having sown good seed in his field. Now, as I've said, if we think that the, the sowing is of the gospel in the first parable, and we want to insist that the same symbols, the same words represent the same actions, then the sowing has to be representative of the gospel here. But we simply can't do that. Because we're here, we're, we're explicitly told that the, he who sows the good seed is the son of man, and, and the good seed are the wheat, and, and they're the children of God, which we will see in the explanation. But we don't have to interpret words in different parables. There's no demand to interpret them in the same meaning. Otherwise, we have a problem, a serious problem, right, with this first parable. So don't let anybody fool you with that one. When we get to field the parable of the treasure of the field. We do not have to interpret it as we do in the parable of the wheat and the tares, as was insisted upon in debate with me on Thursday. It's simply not true. The kingdom of the heavens is likened to a man having sown good seed in his field, and while the man is sleeping, his enemy came and had sown tares among the wheat and departed. And when the grass sprouted and produced fruit, then the tares had also appeared. And coming forth, the servants of the master of the house said to him, Master, have you not sowed good seed in your field? Then from where does it have tares? And he said to them, A man who is an enemy has done this. Then the servants say to him, Then you wish that going out we should gather them? But he says, No, lest gathering the tares you may root up the wheat together with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest... I shall say to the reapers, gather the tares first and bind them in cords for which to burn them, then gather the wheat into my storehouse. This parable, of course, was not an issue on Thursday, but it helps me make my point. He laid forth another parable, saying to them, The kingdom of heavens is like a grain of mustard, which taking a man sowed in his field. Again, we're not sowing the gospel here. We're sowing the kingdom, right? Which is indeed the smallest of all the seeds. But when it grows, it's greater than the herbs and becomes a tree that the birds of heaven come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of the heavens is like leaven, which a woman taken has hidden in three measures of flour until it has all been leavened. Now here's another point, and, and this person that insists that all the words in the parable should be taken the same way. Well, well, leaven is usually negative. Leaven is negative almost everywhere it's mentioned in the New Testament. The leaven of the Pharisees. Paul tells us to remove the old leaven that we may be an unleavened lump in the gospel. And he's talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. But here, leaven is not used negatively. Here, leaven is used positively. That's the way it appears to me. And, and here, the leaven that's used positively, leaven that use, it is used of the truth of the gospel spread among the wheat, the wheat flour, which is the kingdom of Yahweh, when we have the gospel, we arise when we believe the gospel and accept the gospel, we arise to our fullest and, and we create a full loaf, which is the body of Christ. That's how I interpret the leaven here. If I wanted to um, interpret the leaven in a negative way here, I can't make any sense of this, of this parable whatsoever. I, why, why, we would all be destroyed. Because we would all be consumed by the leaven. And, and 
Yahweh has promised that there will always be a remnant of his people in the earth. I cannot read the leaven in a negative fashion here. Even though the leaven is something negative all throughout the New Testament, it is not something negative here. Grain of mustard, of course, is the kingdom of heaven, and we were the least of all, the smallest of all seeds. That's why Abraham was chosen. That's why Jacob was chosen. We're told that explicitly. There's no debate with that parable. I'm only going through each of these parables so that I could prove my point about the parable of the treasure of the field. All these things, Yahshua had spoken to them in parables, the crowds. Without a parable, he spoke nothing to them. But that which was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, I shall open my mouth in parables. I shall bellow things kept secret from the foundation of society. Well, well, one of those things kept secret, because we don't really read about it in the Old Testament. I mean, it's there when you really want to look for it, but it's not explicit is two seed line. And, and, and we see it, but once we see it, it it's absolutely evident. But, but people, there, there are people, and we all know, that there are millions of people who could read the Bible every day and never see it until it's pointed out to them. That, and once it's pointed out to you, it's perfectly. And, and that's what, what he does next by explaining the parable of the wheat and the tares. Then leaving the crowds, he had gone into the house, and his students came forth to him, saying, Elucidate for us the parable of the tares in the field. And responding, he said, He sowing the good seed is the son of man. Now the field is the world, and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. He tells us explicitly in this parable that the son of man is the subject of the parable, that he is the subject of the parable. And most of us in Christian identity, of course, understand this parable and a good seed and the sowing of the tares. And the only way it makes sense in context of the Bible to be describing the, the creation of Adam and the events of Genesis chapter 3. That's not the issue here. Is Christ the issue of the, the subject of every one of these parables? And, and the answer is definitely no. This is the fourth parable of the chapter. He's the subject of the parable here because he explicitly tells us that he is. It's obvious that he's the subject of the parable of the grain of mustard, but not necessarily because he's using a man planting a grain of mustard as an allegory, as a symbol. But that's okay. We know that he's the author of our race. But he's not necessarily the par. He's definitely not the, the subject of the parable of, of the um, the the woman who 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 puts the the leaven into the bread. And he's definitely not necessarily the subject of the parable of the sower at the beginning of the chapter. That is. Intoning whoever spread the gospel. Whoever spreads the gospel, that's what happens. He spreads the seeds of the gospel, and some people hear it and bear fruit, and others hear it, but they won't study, so they're taken away with other things, and others won't hear it at all. That's what he's explaining in the first parable. He's sowing the good seed as the son of man. It's explicit here. Now the field is the world, and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So in the first parable, we see that that which is being sown is the word of God. In this parable, we see that which is being sown are people. 
Therefore, just as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, thusly it shall be in the consummation of the age, the Son of Man shall send his messengers, and they shall gather from his kingdom all offenses and those creating lawlessness, and they shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous shall shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He having an ear must hear. Now we're up to the parable that I had the contention with on Thursday. The kingdom of the heavens is like a treasure hidden in a field, which, which finding a man hides, and from his joy goes and sells all things, whatever he has, and buys that field. And my friend on Thursday insisted that if the field is the world here, I'm sorry, that if the field is the world in the previous parable, then I had to interpret the field as the world here. He went so far as to tell me that if I did not interpret it in that manner, that I was denying the word of God, which is certainly absurd and, and a gross insult. He's telling me how I have to define words in a parable. But then if we look at the first parables I, I've illustrated here, sowing isn't of the, the sowing of the seed. The seed isn't the same in every one of those parables. So his premise is obviously a false premise. Because if the field here has to be the same as the field in the previous parable, then the seed in the parable of the sower has to be the same as the seed of the parable of the wheat and the tares. His premise fails because in those two parables, the sowing and the seed are definitely speaking of different things. We do not have to take all of the symbols in the parables mean the same thing in every single parable we read. That is absolutely, utterly ridiculous. It's a false premise, and, and he insisted on it to push his agenda of what he believes this parable means. He wants the field to be the world because he wants to think that Yahshua Christ bought the world. It's his blood. Now, that's an absolutely false premise. And when I contested it, he actually said to me that I don't want to believe this explanation that Christ bought the world because he, he said that I, I don't believe it because I don't want to believe it. Actually, I don't believe it simply because it doesn't agree with the law and the prophets. It doesn't even agree with the New Testament. Because he insists that every male subject, excluding the one parable, in Matthew 13's parables, is Christ, and the field must be the world, he insists, he comes to the false, acu false conclusion that Christ bought the world. The conclusion is false because the premise is bad. Not every object of all of these parables is Christ. Not every word has to be interpreted the same in every parable. And I've already demonstrated that in the first parable, without a doubt. Sowing of the seed. Christ did not buy the world. The idea of redemption is kinsman redemption, Bible. We have it at, at Isaiah chapter 44, verse 23, Yahweh redeemed Jacob. Isaiah 51, chapter 11 Israel is the redeemed of Yahweh. Isaiah 52, chapter 3, speaking to Israel, You shall be redeemed without money. Isaiah 52, 9 tells us that he redeemed the people of Israel. 
Isaiah 62.12 tells us, The holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh. Isaiah 63.4, The year of my redeemed. Isaiah 63.9, His pity, He redeemed them. Jeremiah 31.11, Yahweh redeemed Jacob. Hosea 7.13, Yahweh redeemed Israel. Micah 6.4, Yahweh redeemed Israel. Zechariah 10.8, Yahweh redeemed Israel. Redemption is the purchasing back of something you once had, and you lost it, you gave it away, you sold it, you leased it out, whatever, it's in the law. When you buy a field, person that you buy the field from under Israel Hebrew law, you have to let him redeem it for that price. Children of Israel, they sold themselves into sin without a price. Yahweh is our kinsman redeemer. He bought us back. That's why Paul tells us that we were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20, 1 Corinthians 7.23. That's why Peter tells us Yahweh bought us, Peter 2.1. Nowhere will you find in Scripture that Yahweh bought the world. Or if you insist on interpreting this parable, I would say that it has to jive with the rest of the Scripture. It has to agree with the rest of the Scripture. The parables do not make doctrine. The law and the prophets, that's where our doctrine should come from. The plain statements in the epistles... And, and the plain statements of Christ, they all agree with the law and the prophets. That's where our doctrine should come from. The parables are only little stories that tell us a lesson. They teach us a lesson. And we can't interpret them in a way, and nobody's going to force me to interpret any parable in a way that disagrees with the law and the prophets. Christ did not buy the world. Christ is not the subject of this particular parable. There's nothing to compel me that he is. I was laughed at when I made that assertion last Thursday. Yes, the person who disagreed with me laughed at me. Told me I've got to be kidding. He is in his own prison. His own prison of false premises. That's the way it is. I do not have to interpret the field here as the world. I do not have to interpret the subject as the Christ. Because Christ is not the subject of all of these parables. And if the word, if the sowing of seed can mean something different in the first parable of this chapter than it does in the second, and the field can mean something different in this parable than from what it does in the parable of the wheat and the tares. It's that simple. Kingdom of the heavens is like a treasure hidden in a field, which when a man when finding a man hides, and from his joy he goes and sells all things whatever he has and buys that. Kingdom of the heavens. We, Israelites, lost in the world, when we find a true gospel message, we have found the kingdom of heaven. When we find the kingdom of heaven, it is like a treasure hidden in a field. We want to sell everything we have. We want to forsake. This is what the true Israelite should do, is to forsake his prior life. Give it away. Sell it. Get rid of it. And buy that field you found the kingdom of heaven in. Buy that mode of life that is amiable to the pursuit of the kingdom of heaven. Let me read Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. 
My son, if thou wilt receive my words, and hide my commandments with thee, but if thou incline thine ear unto wisdom, and apply thine heart to understanding, if thou wilt seekest her as silver, meaning wisdom, seek wisdom as silver, and search for her as for hidden treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of Yahweh, and find the knowledge of God. For Yahweh gives wisdom, out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Wisdom, real wisdom, the wisdom of God, is a treasure. Proverbs 3.13 Happy is the man that finds wisdom, and the man that gets understanding, or acquires understanding. The merchandise of it is better than merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, meaning the understanding. And all the things that thou desire are not to be compared unto her. The truth is the treasure in the field. The truth of the kingdom of heaven. The truth of the gospel is the treasure in the field. When a man finds it, he should want to give up his entire life and go pursue that. That's how I interpret this parable. That's not in conflict with the rest of scripture. If we want to insist that Christ bought the world, we have a problem. That's a backdoor to universalism. But it's contrary to the rest of Scripture, because, as Christ says in John 17, he cares not for the world. He cares for those that Yahweh gave him out of the world. He cares only for those whom he bought, the children of Israel. There's no universalism in the parables, as there's no universalism in the rest of the Bible. The next parable, I believe, demonstrates my point. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchantman seeking a beautiful pearl, and finding one very valuable pearl, having departed, sold all things, whatever he had, and bought it. The pearl, again, is the wisdom of the truth. It's the knowledge of the truth. It's the understanding of what the kingdom of heaven is. Throw not thy pearls before swine. Do not give the truth of the gospel to the non-sheep people. That's what Christ is saying. Throw not thy pearls before swine. Because they'll take that and, and they'll, they'll try to harm you with it. So here we have the kingdom of heaven likened to a pearl. The pearl is the truth. That's all Christ is saying here. These are little parables, little allegories that, that are telling us what to do once we find the truth of the gospel message. He had just given us the truth of the gospel message. The, truth, the first gospel is Genesis 3.15. That there would be enmity between the woman and the serpent. He just revealed something kept secret from the foundation of society. Parable of the wheat and the tares. The devil has children here and God has children here. Now he's telling us what we should do when we acquire this understanding. We should seek to trade our lives for it. That's the way it is. That's my interpretation of these parables. I think I've made my point. I will not be told with persuasive emotional arguments that I have to interpret the parable of the treasure in the field as being Christ's purchase of the world. It's not going to happen. It's contrary to Scripture. We cannot, and, and I'm going to stress this, we cannot interpret the parables the, correctly if the interpretation is contrary to the law and the prophets. Doctrine comes from the law and the prophets. We could be wrong about an interpretation of a parable. We will be wrong. I guarantee you, I'll screw one of them up, probably more than one. However, we can't be wrong about the law and the prophets. 
That's for certain. That's the foundation that we should build our faith on. Joshua Christ certainly did. Okay, that's all I have to say about this topic for now, unless somebody else has some conversation. This is an open forum. I hope somebody has some conversation, or, or this is going to be a one-hour program, and, and 45 minutes of it's gone already. Um, if anybody wants to talk, just let me know, and, and I'll turn your microphone on. I hope somebody wants to talk. This this is um, the participation. There's plenty of people here, but the participation has not been that good the last several weeks. And, and Bruce isn't here this week to bail me out, so somebody better want to talk. I'm just going to go back to playing. Um, maybe I'll play some hillbilly music. I, I walked out of my house today. It was 80 degrees. I couldn't believe it. There, there, was, there was a foot of snow on the ground two weeks ago. There, there were patches of snow all over the ground last week. Oh, Michael, the pearl cannot be Israel. The treasure cannot be Israel because then the field has to be the world. That's just the way it is. Not all of these parables are about Christ and Israel. These parables are teaching lessons for us. We should know how we should conduct our lives to a great extent. They're not all about Christ and Israel. That's just the way it is. Which is what, what, what the person who, who was um, contrary to my, to, my, to my interpretation, that's what he insisted on Thursday. Oh, if I don't get any any participants, I mean, there's 20 people here. If I don't get any participants, I'm going to end this program real soon. Hello, Clifton. Yeah, I got my mic on here. Yes, uh, how I you doing? I tell you that um, Annette uh, DiMattini, you remember her? Yes. Uh, she gave me that same argument argument about the uh, treasure hidden in the field. Oh, well, right, and it's a universalist position. That... Christ bought the whole world. Right, and, and they're trying to make doctrine from a single parable. And she didn't like it very well when I didn't believe it. And uh, the other thing that she didn't like that, uh, uh, is when I came out and said that the, the um, millennium was already passed. She really took offense to that. Well, these people, they don't know. They, they think they're Christian identity, and, and that's fine, but they have no clue how much Judeo baggage they have in, in, in the attic. But I thought you'd find it interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. It, it probably comes straight from Bullinger. Yeah, I think she quotes from Bullinger every once in a while. Well, if it said in the Law and the Prophets that Yahweh was going to buy the world, that Yahweh had to buy the world, then I would have to interpret the, the, the parable in that manner. But, you know, it says in the Law and Prophets that the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness of it. Yahweh owns the world. So how could he have to buy it? That makes no sense whatsoever. The, the, the prophets tell us over and over again, and the law tells us, that Yahweh would have to redeem Israel. He would have to buy Israel back. And that's kinsman redemption. Well, she meant that uh, uh, he bought all the other races. Well, that's what the Judeos wanted to wanted to be. And it's simply not true. This parable, the subject of this parable is not Christ. The subject of this parable is us. So evidently, Europe has universalists over there, too. Well, was Christ here to, to, to tell us how, to teach us and guide us, or was he here to talk about himself? I, I don't think there's very many people that understand the parables. I think the first thing that they have to uh, pick up on the parables where he explains it, he wouldn't even speak unless he spoke in a parable. And so you, the, the next thing, you better find out what a parable is so you can understand a parable. 
But well, right, it's an allegory, and each story is an individual allegory. We can't we can't be compelled to interpret all the symbols the same way in every parable. Uh, I just disproved that idiotic idea right from the first two parables in in this chapter. Who's that idea wrong? Uh, yeah, my uncle he he tried to prove that uh, um, the rich man and uh, Lazarus and rich man, and he tried tried to prove to me that that was a real L, you know that. Uh, and I says, well, no, that, that's one of Christ. Uh, he, he 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 didn't he didn't teach anything except he he uh, taught in parables. So I said, that's, that, that hell is a parable there. Well, if that hell is real, then we have to go back to that parable of the mustard seed, right? We're all some mustard, right? <laughs> we have to go to the parable of the net. We're all fish. <laughs> if the hell is real, the fish have to be real. <laughs> you, just can't t- you just can't take a, a parable literally. Occasionally, yeah, you can, but, but most of the time you can't. Well, you know, the fish represent people, so so the hell has to represent something totally different than what it is. That, that's they're parables, they're allegories. If we don't understand that, that that one symbol can represent something else, then then we're lost. That, that's well, not critical thinking uh, at all. You're throwing fish along people. It's yeah, well, alongside, and so you're you're throwing fish along people. Yes, yeah, so you're using fish to illustrate people is what you're doing. Exactly. It's like when your wife gets mad at you and he, he, she calls you by a name of some guy she doesn't like some habit he has. <laughs> I don't know whether that happened to you, but that happened to me every once in a while. But I, I, I took three, three shots at wives, and they call me a whole lot of different things. I don't want to repeat. <laughs> yes, Michael, I believe the rich man represents the Edomite Jew. But, um... Because they had, they claimed to have Moses and the prophets, right? And they didn't listen to them either. That, that's the Jew for you. It gets a little more complicated than that, though, because he had five brothers. I, I, I'll admit that he's related. It's related to the Edomite Jew, but it's, it's also referring to Judah in in, 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 a, in a way. Uh, uh, the Jews that race mixed. Oh well, well, yeah, the, the bad figs. But Christ said, even even if they, um, Christ said they wouldn't even believe if one of if somebody rose from the dead. Who else in the Bible had five brothers? Right, Judah did have five brothers. That's a good point. Yeah. So they, these parables are a little more complicated uh, than they appear on the surface. Absolutely, no doubt. I'll bear that in mind when I cover Matthew. I'm going to start covering Matthew Friday. Yeah, that's right. You'll be getting right into it, won't you? Yeah, I'm going to do Matthew all, all, all off the top of my head. I'm not. I'm going to do a little preparation. I'm, I'm going to check. Um, I'm going to check ahead for certain things. I'm, I'm, I have some notes in my Bible. That's all I'm going to use. I think I'll do a good job like that. Well, I come across something that I wasn't aware of before, and it's that uh, there, it's it's in uh, Matthew, it's in Luke, uh, it's in Mark and Luke, and that's where Christ says that. Uh, uh, that in in the next world uh, will be like the angels, you know, uh, and there will be uh, no marrying or giving in marriage. In heaven, yeah. You know, that, you, know you, you can't find that any place in the Old Testament. The only place that can be found is in, um, oh, what is it, the um, Enoch, Book of Enoch. And, and it's... Uh, 
chapter 15, verse 7, and it says that the... Um, it says that they didn't need wives because they were ageless. They didn't die, so they didn't yeah. need to marry. But you I'm, I'm aware of that. You go over to the seventh chapter, and it gives you the same thing that it gives you in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and spells it out real good. So the book of uh, uh, Enoch is, contradicts itself. Uh, so there's a there's a, an example of of, uh, of uh, something bad about the book of Enoch, and I'm convinced that 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 may be uh, some kind of a gloss that was added in. Uh, either that, or I don't understand the Greek too well. But but I, I'm just convinced now that that uh, uh, I think his main point was that he wanted to make about the resurrection that that only um, the um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were among the living because it goes on to that. And, and uh, I think that was the main po uh, point uh, that Christ was trying to get across there, not, not that the the uh, angels were sexless. Oh. Because there's, there's sure enough evidence, you know, in other places, the, the angels that sent them, and they they did they uh, did the same thing they did at Sodom and Gomorrah. They they had to be able to ha uh, have sexual behavior, or they couldn't have done those things. But it's, who was I, having I, sex I at Sodom and Gomorrah? The Canaanites wanted to have sex at Sodom and Gomorrah. I think that he meant that in heaven the angels didn't need they didn't have a need to um, marry and give no, marriage. I didn't say that they they did that there. It says like unto. I'll have to get with you, and maybe you could spell that out for me, and I'll examine it. I'm looking at 1 Enoch 15 now, and I've read this, you know, many times, and, and it, it's always agreed with um, Christ's words in, in Matthew and Mark that the watchers of heaven didn't have to commingle with each other to have offspring because they were eternal, right? And that's the difference made in Enoch with men. Surely you, you used to be holy, spiritual, the living ones, possessing eternal life, but now you have defiled yourselves with women, with the blood of the flesh, begotten children, have lusted with the blood of people, or men probably, like them producing blood and flesh which die and perish. Now we have to understand too that this book of Enoch is not in anywhere near the condition I'm sure that the apostles had it, right? I'm sure they had a much better copy of Enoch than we have today, or, or that we're stuck with today, would be my guess anyway. So how does this um, Enoch 15 conflict with Enoch 7, Clifton? One Enoch, Clifton. I think we lost him. Oh, I didn't have my mic on. I'm sorry. I've been clicking it on and off here to uh, not have distortion. But uh, if you read uh, verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11 of the 7th chapter of Enoch, It'll just say just the opposite of what uh, uh, chapter um, 10 says. Um, no, it's 15 says. They took wives unto themselves, and every one respectively chose one woman for himself. And they began to go unto them. And they taught them magical medicine, incantations, the cutting of roots, and taught them about plants. And the women became pregnant and gave birth to great giants whose heights were 300 cubits. Yeah, you know, I really think that that's a gloss, right? Well, either that's a gloss, or what Christ said uh, might be a gloss. Well, well, there's no um, I I I inspected those verses very closely 
when I translated them, and I found no reason to dispute they weren't a, that they were a part of the original text. Yeah, I, I would uh, I would say that the, probably the, the the Greek is right, but uh, they could they could have originated from from a from a uh, somebody wrote it between the lines or along along the edge, and somebody else come along and made it part of the scripture too. But well, right. But I'm pretty sure that it's consistent in all the manuscripts. In in fact, I'm gonna just for the heck of it, right? I'm gonna look it up. Matthew. Twenty-two, twenty-two, thirty. 30. I don't read as quick as I used to. I We're in the resurrection. Firstly, marrying. They will be marrying and giving in marriage. Uh, they will be neither marrying nor giving in marriage. My Greek is getting rusty too. But as the angels which are in the heavens, and it is on. Um, there's a couple of disputes. Form of one of the words. The form of the word giving in marriage is different in some manuscripts. The form of the words for heaven is different in some manuscripts. There's no um. There's no reason in the text. Already text. It's in the the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Vaticanus, Codex Bazai, and they're all pretty consistent with each other. There's no reason for me to um. Well, while there's no papyri here, yet you know there are no ancient papyri witnesses listed here. There's no reason for me to doubt that this is once in a text. It's in all the fourth and fifth century codices. Um, it's also over at uh, Mark um, twelve. Um, it's Mark twelve twenty-five. Yeah. Yeah, and then then in Luke twenty, uh, it's maybe twenty-two something. Now the only difference in in Mark 12 is that some the the Codex Alexandrinos has an article following the word angels, and all of the other manuscripts are relatively consistent. The Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Washingtonensis. There is no Codex Sinaiticus. Oh, no, okay. The Codex Sinaiticus is must be missing this verse because it's. Oh no, it's okay. The Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Bazai are in agreement here. They're um. And it's it's a little different. It has an article in the Vaticanus and the Alexandrinus that aren't in the other manuscripts after the word angels. Other than that, the entire Mark 12:25 is consistent. For when dead are raised, they will neither be marrying nor giving in marriage, but are as the angels which are in the heavens. Now, now that word "which" is missing in a couple of manuscripts, but that's it. The only well, how, how about the passage in Luke? Uh, and uh, I'm not just sure. I think it's around Luke 20, possibly 22. No, it's Matthew's 22. Uh, it must be 20. No, I don't have it. In, in, let me look up angels in Luke. I looked up angels in heaven, and and it'd be different in Luke 20:36. It's this is a very different verse. This is so different, I wouldn't even think it was talking about the same thing. Luke twenty thirty six. Neither can they die any more, for they were equal unto the angels, and their children of God being the children of the resurrection. That, that's a very that, that's not even talking about the same thing. And generally, Luke is pretty good. But well, the thing is that Luke may have just been recording a different conversation there. Well, you know, there's two parts of the conversation. Uh, it it's, it 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 uh, the way I look at it there. It's kind of breaking up the family circle, and then turn around in the next, and, and then right after that, it reinforces the, the family circle. 
uh, by citing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, right, but he's talking about the, the differences, the, the resurrection in, in a glorified heavenly body and, and the way the family existed in an earthly body. And, and that's the same distinction that Enoch is making in chapter 10. But, you know, there's one, one more fact that has to be taken into consideration, and that's the fact that uh, Yahweh divorced us and he's going to remarry us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, he, he doesn't break any of his own laws, so that would prevent him from remarrying us. No, I think he's just telling us that, that in, a, in a resurrected body, there's no need to, for us to multiply anymore. But that's might be right. Sons of the resurrection, that's what he's saying. But that's what I've been studying all day, and I was trying to find out where the fair, or no, it was the Sadducees, giving him the trouble, and he said that, because uh, you don't know the scriptures, and I thought, well, if they didn't know the scriptures, it's got to be in the Old Testament someplace, and I couldn't find it, you know, in the canonized books. I couldn't find it any place uh, in the, in the cross references. Well, no, I have no Old Testament corroboration for this, except Enoch, where it says that the angels, that the heavenly angels, did not have to um, have have sex because they were eternal. That's that what it says. One single verse. Yes. But I have no, that there's no, let me, let me say this, there's no ancient papyri evidence, these passages in Matthew or Mark. But, right? Well, I, believe, I believe that. Yeah, I believe that. But there, there were no papyri given, supplied by the NA-27 for, the, for the, the verses before and after those either. It, it just might be that those fragments haven't been... Discovered in, papy in, in papyri, right? I mean, that, that's true of a lot of passages in, in, the, um, in the Old Testament. There's no ancient papyri of, of Titus or 2 Timothy or, 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 or um, I'd like to say of most of the Revelation, but that might be true of, of all of the Revelation. There's a lot of books that aren't attested to by ancient papyri, but it is fully attested to by the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. And and several of the ancient codices, they date to the fourth century, right? Yeah, I tried to go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, well, well, yeah, they're not going to have it. The place to go would be to the early church, the earliest church writers, um, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, and and those people, and see if they mention those passages, right? Yeah, I, I could do a search in uh, Libernex. Uh, well, that's the only way you're going to find anything, something older than the fourth century. That's your only hope. But one I, uh, I found, uh, after I couldn't find it myself in, in my best cross-reference system, uh, I, I went to the um, Interpreter's Bible, and, and uh, that is where I discovered that uh, it was in Enoch. Uh, and that was, seemed to be the only place they knew of. And, and I thought, surely, you know, uh, as many of those guys, that, you know, that uh, contribute to that, uh, if, if it was someplace else in the Old Testament, they would surely knew, known about it. Right. I, I can't think of any place where it might be. I, I would check to see if Tertullian or Irenaeus or Justin Marr wrote about it. Check Libronics. Check your Logos Digital Library. But inasmuch as Christ accused the uh, Sadducees of not understanding the Scriptures, uh, he, he could have only had uh, Enoch in mind. Well, that's what it seems to me. 
So that would make uh, Enoch uh, one of the books that should be in the Bible. I have no trouble with that, but I I do have a problem with a lot of things uh, in, in our present uh, translations of Enoch. Well, right. I don't think it's necessarily the translations themselves of Enoch, but uh, I, I would want to examine the Dead Sea Scrolls and compare that, that chapter 7 there to the one I have here in Charles. I'm using Charlesworth, right? It's the... Um, it's the Old Testament pseudepigrapher, apocalyptic literature and, and testaments, edited by James H. Charlesworth. It's two volumes. They're really pretty voluminous. And um, I, uh, I checked with uh, uh, chapter 15, but I didn't cha- uh, check with chapter. Maybe I should check with chapter 7 and see if I can find anything on that. But we'll see if chapter 7 is attested to by the Dead Sea Scrolls and see what it says. Uh-huh. Because that Ethiopic Enoch, I mean, it's I got a lot of problems with it, right? Yeah, there's 20 uh, um, parts. They found 20 uh, different uh, manuscripts or fragments or whatever uh, with with the Book of Enoch. They actually found more on Enoch than they did the uh, the 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 Book of Genesis. Well, you know something that's really weird, but every every passage. In Genesis, that I think might settle an argument in, in favor of, of our interpretation of Genesis, just happens to be missing. Every time I look for something, it's generally missing. Yeah, well, Genesis four one and things like that. Well, Genesis um twenty thirty two seven and about three or four years before I before I was satisfied. Or I'm sorry, Genesis 23:7. They're all missing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. All the good places where, where we would need to settle an argument are missing. It can't be a coincidence. Well, the one thing I, I don't believe that that the Almighty is going to break up the the family circle as it is here on Earth. I'd sure hate to go to uh, Abraham and Sarah's house and Sarah not be there. Well, right. I, I I don't know. It's I don't know what to make of that. I'm not going to pretend to see what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Uh, I'm sure he was answering the Sadducees because of their lack of insight into anything spiritual, and they're arguing over what the kingdom of heaven is going to be look like. They don't believe in the spirit in the first place. Well, the main point of the whole thing uh, that overshadowed this thing about marrying and and, and giving in marriage was that that Abraham, Isaac, and uh, Jacob, were, uh, they, they were living. Uh, and, and the Sadducees were um, the walking dead. They didn't, didn't have the, the breath of life uh, that was breathed into Adam. And that's, that's, what, that's, what, that's the main object of the whole uh, parable in that, that, that part. So Christ was just telling the, the Sadducees in a roundabout way that they, they were the walking dead. They were zombies. There's a lot of people in, in identity don't believe these other people, these non-Adamites uh, are zombies. They're, they're walking dead people. <laughs> well, well, if they don't, yeah, you know, Jude talks about these people that eat with the Israelites. It, it's the same analogy I used the other night in, of Peter. In, in in 2 Peter chapter 2, and, and Jude also discusses it, and Peter calls them clouds without water. He's talking about other people who are not Israelites but are eating 
and and partaking with us in, in our community that that could be you that that could be interpreted in the wider way that they're sharing the fruits of our national um, blessings also right that they're in the same country with us and 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 feeding off the same government and and and, and engaging in the same elections and and all the same community that's what it boils down to but they are spots. It's food stamps. Right. That these people who are communing with us and don't belong to be communing with us because they're not Israelites, they are spots in our feasts of charity. They are clouds without water, meaning they're broken cisterns to me, right? They don't have the spirit given to Adam. And they're gone in the way of Cain, which means they're of mixed race. And they're like evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed. When you want to look at the non-Israelites around you, and you want to look at them according to Scripture, better read Jude, and you better read 2 Peter chapter 2. Because that's what they're talking about. Well, you know, Jude doesn't change his subject. When he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, and, 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 and talks about race mixing, and the way of Cain, and, and whatever else he talks about, it, it's all, all the same subject. And it's all talking about those people partaking with us that don't deserve to be non-Israelites among us. That's what it's talking about. Well, I think it was, wasn't it Jeremiah that said that uh, we'd chase these foreigners like a, a wild dromedary? You know, that, that that's a camel when it's in heat. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think we'll be getting bus tickets back to Mexico. Well, you know, it's like... Uh, uh, we have tornadoes in this country, you know, and, and, and the people don't uh, hardly help each other at all, but they have a tsunami in Japan, and, and people are just opening up their pockets, and they giving money that they don't even have, or Haiti and that kind of stuff. Uh, they they chase these wild dromedaries. But they're actually flying down there and adopting kids and bringing them back to white neighborhoods up north. That's just that's suicidal. So I don't think uh, Jeremiah was out of the way of uh, liking him to a, 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 a camel in heat. Uh, you know, a camel can walk faster than we can run. So a camel moves right along pretty fast. So when a, when a, if it's a camel uh, in heat uh, looking for a female, he's going he can move along pretty quickly. But there's a, there's a parable in itself, you know. That that uh, we're like uh, wild dromedaries, chasing foreigners. Yeah, more, more like drunken goats. I don't. <laughs> it's all the same. But well, are we going to get any of anybody else's input into this program tonight, or or not? What's going on here? Nobody wants to talk tonight. There are guys here that are usually full of words. Well, oh, Clifton, I'm going to get. I, I'm going to try to get one of your angels chained in darkness papers this week. Yeah. Um... You know, I've I've sent uh, all the stuff to be um, uh, put on the internet, and I've been waiting for, uh, to get the links uh, when you when you get uh, 155 and 156. And oh, okay, yeah, I'll try to get to that this weekend. And the, there's um, um, not all about it, to be honest. Uh, two on um, I, I could list them and then uh, send you uh, what I need and uh, send you email. Uh, what I need for my links. 
I proofread them all, and I forgot all about it. I forgot all about posting them. That's well. Uh, I'll get it done this week. The fellows came over yesterday, and uh, I was able to get out my regular post office mail uh, on, you know, and so uh, uh, I have time now to start working on my other emails. And so when you can get around, I, I know that you're busy, so I haven't bothering you on it. Yeah, I have, my yeah. mother's surgery has taken a huge chunk out of my schedule almost every day. Uh, I got to, um, got to um, help with meal preparation and meal cleanup and um, things that I'm usually spoiled brown and I'm not used to having to do right. I got to run her around. I got to take her to therapy tomorrow and then I got to take her to Walmart and can't drive yet. She won't be driving for at least a month. So. Yeah, I, I knew that and uh, of course that uh, having to have that new furnace uh, Stole that through my throw me off schedule quite a bit, and I just couldn't I couldn't think of something else. And and those guys in the house working at the same time, and I had to go take a look at once in a while what they were doing to make sure that uh, didn't screw up someplace. They were pretty good, but I, I still didn't feel easy enough with them to to work on something else. So that took a whole week there. I'll post your document this week so you can get your mailer out by the weekend. Yeah, okay. I'll send you a list of the items I need. Well, hey, did you get that email where a, a guy, you know, we know between us, that he apologized to me? Yeah, right. Yeah. That, that he, he came after the, all that stuff you sent him. He, he yeah, he, he came around. That, that's a great thing. Yeah, and... and I, I think it's uh, an important person to have on our side. Yeah, I'm going to send him my, um, my my revelation transcripts maybe this week. If not this week, then definitely next week. Yeah, you can just stick my... Uh, yeah, I'll probably just do that. But, you know, I thought that was great that uh, he, he finally saw through it. And, and my whole 156 is going to be on uh, uh, Judah being divorced. I, I just figured it's time to stop and and do a whole lesson on just nothing but that. Oh, and I've been saying that on programs for two years with Eli. Nobody ever wanted to debate me on it. And I'm going to use your notes on that. Uh, that'll take about half of the lesson. It's it, If Judah isn't divorced, then Yahweh committed the crime with Adam, right? It's that simple. Well, it, there's another thing that, that that's important there, too, is that uh, once uh, there's uh, been an unclean uh, act committed, uh, the first thing you have to do uh, by, by Yahweh's own law, you have to, before you cast them out of the house, you have to write a bill of divorce and present it. So it doesn't speak, uh, the scripture doesn't speak about that but it speaks about the casting out of Judah. So Yahweh didn't keep his own law unless he wrote her a bill of divorce. Right. Now, now, some prophet somewhere evidently wrote something on it. Well, well it's not it, It's not called a bill of divorce, but I think it's in about five chapters of Jeremiah, at least. Well, it, it says it cast out the two families. Yeah, well, well it, but how about all the... Um, the prophecy that te says that explicitly that Judah is going to be cast out. That is the but bill you, of divorcement. But you, you don't cast out before you write the, write the uh, notice, though. 
And, and what's the notice consist of? That the wife is cast out. Well, well, there's a whole bunch of chapters in Jeremiah stating explicitly that Yahweh's casting out Judah. Well, it's a legal document you present to the wife so, so that she knows her status and everybody. And that's what Jeremiah was doing with those broken bottles and all those utterances to the, to the principles of Judah. That was their bill of divorce. That's the way I look at it. I never thought of that. The prophecy itself is the official notice that the divorce is going to happen, that they're being cast out. But, 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 but the bill... It may not be a fancy piece of parchment with bill of divorce scrolled across the top of it in, in fancy handwriting, but, but it's still the same. Precede the casting out, though. And it did. Jeremiah told them for 20 years they were being cast out. Okay. For 20 years he wrote it. You're being cast out. That's the bill of divorce. I never thought about it that way. Well, that's the way I think about it. I mean, what more do you want? How many more chapters do you want, Jeremiah, to say you're on your way? Well, he cast them all out except the remnant. But, well, the remnant wasn't divorced, right? There was a remnant left behind, and we were told that a remnant would be left behind. Yeah. So the remnant was from more than just Judah. I hope with Lesson 156 uh, I, I can make it clear to everybody because I, 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 th I think there's other people out there thinking in the same direction as what he was thinking. Anyway, uh, uh, we got a guy on our side now. Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm going to send did, did you send him that material I, I had on Genesis? The Genesis uh, heresy material, right, and all that? I forget whether I, uh, I, I sent him mainly your notes. On the on the divorce that you sent me, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I had a hard time getting them over to my other printer, but uh, I, I finally manipulated it so I could get it over there and send it. Send him a nice, neat uh, package of it. Uh, I noticed you didn't have any Greek fonts in that one. Yeah. No. Probably yeah. not. Well, that helped out on that. And uh, there was a dispute over with one of Clifton's proofreaders, one of the better proofreaders, that that um got upset with Clifton when he said that Judah was divorced, and and he took that old line Christian identity position that Judah was never divorced, and and Clifton sent him my notes on the topic, and and wrote back apologizing to Clifton, which it's it's nice to win one through on. Persuasion and, and, and expert, right? Word, right. Well, I just think the Almighty wanted, wanted me to address it one more time. Now, Kent, on another note, while you're here, because this um, because because this has come up, Greeks identified four eye colors among men. I don't know what they are. They had a weird way of of um of describing eye color, right? And I'm trying to get this this out so I could get the Greek words. I, I mean, I know them, but I, I want to read them. Now I can't find the paper. Oh, there it is. There's four eye colors among men, and this is from Aristotle, right, which is the the um, the earliest writer and one of the only ones. that They didn't talk about eyes very much. It's really weird. They're just like the Hebrew Bible. They hardly ever mention eye color. And um, the one eye color is ahigopos. Ahigopos, I'm sorry. And that means having eyes like a goat. The other one is Glaucus, and that's gray-eyed or light blue. The other one is Melus, and that means dark. But it don't mean dark what? It, it Could it be brown? And the other one is Carapus, 
And that's supposed to be bluish-gray. That's what Glaucus is. So they identify four eye colors, according to Aristotle, and um, two of them are blue and gray, blue or gray. So, so it's really strange. Uh, I'm going to try to find out more about this, but it's weird. Old eyes or blue eyes or gray eyes or mellus eyes, which is probably brown, but I can't see with any certainty. Yeah. I mean, I've seen blue, blue eyes and gray, blue eyes, but I've never seen dark blue eyes. That would probably be Carapus as opposed to Glaucus, maybe. But goat eyes. I, I wrote Cammy and asked her what color her goat's eyes were. I have blue eyes, but I haven't checked what flavor. Okay, well, if nobody else has anything to say, this program's probably run its course. I mean, Cliff and I could probably banner for a, a long time, but I don't know how productive it is for everybody else. Uh, I'm just going to thank everybody for being here, and I'll see you next week.